1: Granger, for the ones who get it done. The former chief of staff at the White House during Reagan's presidency, Don Regan, tells a story of how shortly after he became Reagan's chief of staff, there was an alert. There was smoke in the White House. Guards scurried everywhere throughout the property to find out the source of the smoke. Finally, they traced it. It was the President's study. And they put the fire out pretty easily. But the interesting thing was, the whole time, President Reagan was there, working at his desk in the study. He heard the disturbance. He noticed the smoke. But he stayed at his desk, even as it got a little more difficult to read due to eye irritation. He continued to look at his documents and mark them as he was prone to do. Finally, the guards suggested to the president that he find another room to do his work in. That's fine, he said. Hadn't want to bother anybody. To Don Regan, he saw it as evidence of Reagan's style. He hesitated to make decisions, preferred to defer. He'd assume someone else was taking care of an action. And for a man blessed with the power of the leader of the free world, he didn't always want to seem to be using it.
0: been a fiasco uh, or a a great failure of any kind, we still have those contacts, Uh, we still have made some ground, we got our hostages back, three of them.
1: This podcast series is a dozen Ronald Reagans, I'm now at episode eight. It's taken an entire year, took much longer than I thought it would. (laughs) And for that reason, I want to let you know that you can go to the website at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com and get all of the episodes from episode one to episode seven. And as we complete the next group, we'll post them there too. So it's www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com and you'll see it there. We have all of... The Dozen Ronald Reagan's Episodes. It's hard to tell when a moment of great national importance really starts, and that's particularly true of the scandal that erupted in Washington in 1986 that we're going to discuss today. But it's possible that it started with one reporter's question and a reporter that's familiar to us.
0: I have a few words here before I take your questions. Some brief remarks.
1: For a while, President Reagan's press conference was going swimmingly. He made two things clear from his answers. He would deliver the truth as he knew it to be the case. And he would stick it to the media.
0: Eighteen months ago, as I said last Thursday, this administration began a secret initiative to the Islamic Republic of Iran.
1: After all, since the publication of an article in a Lebanese newspaper that revealed the United States have arranged for the sale of arms to the country that five years before it held Americans in captivity and took a long time releasing them, that the U.S. had a trade embargo against, that they were encouraging other nations to follow. Now it was revealed in this Lebanese newspaper that they had arranged for a sale of weapons to this adversary in order to get hostages held in Lebanon released. The story was a bombshell. And after a few days of careful answers from the White House, Reagan had had it with the media and decided to do what he did so often in his presidency, what had worked best, to go Directly to the American people, to the television screen, and explain it. And he hit hard in his explanation at who he felt was at fault the media.
0: I know you've been reading, seeing, and hearing a lot of stories the past several days attributed to Danish sailors, unnamed observers at Italian ports and Spanish harbors, and especially unnamed government officials of my administration. Well, now you're going to hear the facts from a White House source, and you know my name.
1: He did reveal that the U.S. began an opening of relations, and yes, part of that was to get arms to a group within Iran.
0: To summarize, our government has a firm policy not to capitulate to terrorist demands, that no concessions policy remains in force. In spite of the wildly speculative and false stories about arms for hostages and alleged ransom payments, we did not, repeat, did not trade weapons or anything else for hostages, nor will we.
1: After that speech, very nice, but the media reports hadn't stopped. Some information actually seemed to contradict this assessment in his TV address. So Reagan decided to get in front of the press a press conference is very different from a tv speech of course reagan was very good at the oval office addresses nothing he liked better than the camera he told his aide michael deaver still photographs lie but the moving picture doesn't reagan has an advantage as he walks down the red carpet background and to the podium where the White House correspondents are lined up from the major newspapers and TV networks. He is the more popular person in the room with the American people. And so he speaks to them. Eighteen months ago, this nation began an initiative of opening relations to replace a relationship of hostility with something new. Now, first off, this is... A kind of interesting thing for today's politics, right? An American president attempting, even if it is the result of getting caught, perhaps, trading for hostages, attempting to have a goal of working with Iran. 1986. Reagan then reveals that there was a modest shipment set not to the government but to individuals within the country, well, to kind of bolster them up, and we wanted to work with them to increase their prestige, to show that they were friends of the United States. He acknowledged that not all his cabinet agreed with this strategy. Everyone in the room knew that. He was referencing his Secretary of State, George Shultz. Reagan knew, opposed this kind of plan. He said there was discussion within the cabinet. But the course justified the risk. Then he turned his cannon on the media for creating a perception that the administration was trading arms for hostages. Because of the media coverage, he would rope in efforts to do further arms sales and get hostages back. He had made several admissions that were bizarre as part of a story that was shocking the nation was without a doubt the most damaging thing that have occurred in a presidency. And this is a dozen Ronald Reagans. This is a series that uh, on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We have been doing this since the beginning of last year. We've gone over a bunch of stories. And for the most part, with his own party or in a bipartisan fashion, Reagan has gotten what he wanted in D.C. But this is the most shocking admission still he explains it and then he turns and asks the reporters if there's any questions not surprisingly there were first the wenwell k okay. upi's helen thomas asked uh, reagan has your credibility been impaired and another will you now tear up the arms embargo absolutely not reagan said to both Will uh, Secretary of State Schultz resign since he disagrees with you? No. It's a question from ABC correspondent Chris Wallace that is probably the pivot point in the press conference. From things going along the president's script, implausible as it might be, to starting to point out some inconsistencies. Mr. President, you have stated flatly, and you have stated flatly before tonight, that you have not traded arms for hostages. And yet the record shows that any time a hostage was released, there was a major arms shipment that preceded it. Are we to believe this is just coincidence? Wallace's question triggers answers that put blood in the water, if you will, and
0: Suggestion that these weapons might be used to topple the Ayatollah. to the arms embargo when you thought it was in the U.S. interest to do so. Why shouldn't other nations ship weapons to Iran when they you think it's the in their interest? diplomatic relations with
2: Nicaragua to increase the pressure on the Sandinista uh,
0: government. What would be wrong with saying that a mistake
1: was made on a very high-risk gamble? Why did you go against your own policy? Why wouldn't this encourage more hostage taking? Would this upset the diplomatic balance in the region?
0: No, and I don't see in any way how how that could be with the particular things that we were were using. I I don't see where the Ayatollah could be a logical target for an anti-aircraft missile.
1: As he answered, other reporters questioned his answers. So how can you say that it cannot alter the military balance? And how can you say, sir, that it didn't break the law? when the National Security Act of 1977 plainly talks about timely notification of Congress and also, sir, stipulates that if the national security requires secrecy, the president is still required to advise the leadership and the chairman of the intelligence committees. Bill,
0: everything you said here is based on the supposition that is false.
1: One of the things Reagan says, everything that he traded could fit on a cargo plane plus some missiles. He said Tau missiles were shoulder-fired. They were not. They were large anti-tank weapons. Uh, it was <clears throat> it was a high-risk gamble. And it was a gamble that, as I've said, I believe these circumstances warranted. Off-guard, hesitant, repeating statements, very un-Reagan-like in his communications in this conference. Wobbly gestures
0: gave us indication and evidence that uh, that policy was changing.
1: There was more, the swapping, how it occurred, how many weapons exactly were given. And so,
0: as I said, to give them more prestige and muscle uh, there where they were,
1: we made this sale. Reporters asked, how could you say that when Reagan insists that... He wasn't trading arms for hostages because giving arms to Iran wasn't the same as the Hezbollah movement. Reporters pointed out how he had said at other times that Iran was directing Hezbollah and how could they not be in control. Hezbollah was the organization that took the Lebanese hostages. The news conference was a disaster, said Secretary of State George Shultz, who afterwards summoned the president, and corrected some of the mistakes that he made. For more than an hour, Schultz said, I went at it with the president. He was using information from the CIA and from his national security advisor, John Poindexter, that wasn't correct. The Wall Street Journal, normally a Reagan-friendly paper, panned the conference and the policy. If some malicious Merlin had concocted a way to destroy the administration, a policy of selling arms to the world's primary terrorism state would be it. El Salvador is closer to Texas than Texas is to Massachusetts. Nicaragua is just as close to Miami, San Antonio, and Tucson as those cities are to Washington, where we are gathered tonight. So President Reagan made his policy clear to Congress in a 1983 joint session. He talked about how a Soviet brigade was in Cuba, how the Panama Canal was threatened, how in any crisis where we needed to intervene in Europe, we'd have to go through that canal. Reagan was clear. Central America was a priority of his foreign policy, even where opinions varied among the American people and particularly the Democratic majority in Congress. When, in 1982, funding to the Contras was blocked, Reagan told his National Security Council head, Robert McFarlane, to make sure we allow the Contras, the group opposing the Sandinistas running Nicaragua, to keep body and soul together. As Reagan notes in his diary in 1983, we have been so restricted by Congress in our help to hill Salvador that we are finally losing to the rebels. I finally told the National Security Council to come up with a plan of how we could be of more help, not if we should. Around this time in Lebanon, the CIA chief there, William Buckley, and six other Americans are kidnapped by extremist Muslim groups connected to Hezbollah. Now, keep in mind here, Reagan follows Carter. He hasn't been reelected yet at this point. Reagan's still in his first term. He knows that part of the reason he got the presidency was because Carter was tagged with the Iran hostage crisis. He doesn't want trouble with hostages. He doesn't want trouble with Iran. He certainly doesn't want these problems. So he gives McFarlane what he thinks is at least. Encouragement to go forward with a deal to sell arms to Iran using Israel as a conduit. Sounds strange today, right? <laughs> this is the 1980s. The geopolitical situation slightly different. There's Iraq to contend with. So 1,500 missiles are delivered. And that's, you know, you'll often hear that phrase relating to the Iran-Contra. And it it might not help to understand so much. the Arms for hostages. And that's one thing that's probably forgotten, that we weren't talking about just a bunch of Uzis that were sent to Iran. These were missiles. 1,500 missiles were delivered, and a few, but not all, of those hostages were released. And now new hostages were even taken. George Shultz was critical of this policy he called a hostage bazaar. Unbeknownst to Reagan, unbeknownst to McFarlane, unbeknownst to many in the CIA who were begging for some kind of deal to get William Buckley back, Buckley was unfortunately killed by the time the deal was even hatched. His death would not be confirmed until 1985 and a body not recovered until 1991. Negotiations, arms trading, activities, missiles, weaponry, Important equipment like helicopter parts the Iranian government was running out of due to the arms embargo are going on during Reagan's first term and into the second. It's in 1986 when that Lebanese newspaper releases the article and the story becomes public. Reagan first denies it, then has to retract the denial. This is not looking good. He has his attorney general, Edwin Meese, look into it which he does mies finds out these sales occurred but he also found that there should have been more money resulting from the arms deals 30 million was due to the government for these sales but only 12 came in they go to lieutenant colonel oliver north and he admits that he did it he diverted the remainder of this money made from selling arms through israel to iran to the nicaraguan contras he misled the administration He made phony records. He shredded documents. His boss, he says, Admiral Poindexter knew of it, and the president, he assumed, knew about it, too. The White House takes prompt action, firing North and Poindexter. But now you've got a scandal. Every day we turned on the news, it was something different, Nancy Reagan said. I must have dropped 10 pounds over the next few months. James Baker, who was Reagan's first chief of staff, later weighed in on this. He's no longer part of the White House team. He's in the Treasury Department and not taking part in any of the events related to Iran-Contra. The trouble began on Bud McFarlane's watch in 1985 when Iran secretly made a request to buy weapons from our government. An embargo against such sale in place but Bud MacFarlane asked the president for authority to talk to the Iranians. His reasoning? The sale would lead to better relations with Iran, and quite possibly Lebanon, where Iranian-backed terrorists were holding U.S. hostages. The president had long made it clear that he would not deal with terrorists. But he was a very sentimental man. The same sentimentality led him, I believe, to approve the arms for hostages gambit. He also sincerely believed that dealing with Iranian moderates the administration never never dealt directly with terrorists, might influence the direction Iran would have taken after the death of Ayatollah Khomeini. Casey, the CIA director under Reagan, also favored the deal, but the president probably should have known it was a bad idea from the fact that Schultz and Weinberger, who rarely agreed on anything, Baker says, both gave it a thumbs down. With no end in sight to press coverage on this, and with this new discovery, Reagan appoints John Tower, a respected former senator, Brent Scowcroft, an Air Force general at the time, and Edmund Muskie, a significant Democrat uh, former candidate for the vice presidency, to investigate the matter. They release a report of the events. They're critical of Reagan. but They generally blame the associates. Doing it. Reagan appears before the board to answer questions. He stated that he'd authorized the arms deal, then he later said he did not recollect. His diary and his autobiography indicate that he did know. The release of the Tower Commission report will force Reagan to make another television address. And unlike so many that he made during his presidency that were masterful, that he probably enjoyed, this was a more painful statement.
0: A few months ago, I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in
0: lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but
1: nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. In the end, the commission says the president did not understand the nature of who was involved in what was happening. It doesn't look good for him as a president, but it avoids some kind of Watergate thing. Part of the evidence that helps to acquit Reagan, interestingly enough, in the press, came from a technology that we would take for granted today, but was not so common in 1985. And that's email. At the high levels of government, technology was a little better than it was in the rest of the country. North is using an email system with Poindexter, so there's a record of all these notes. He's told by Poindexter to keep his actions private. North then asks in an email if Chief of Staff Don Regan knows. North suggests that surely the president doesn't know about this deal. But he must know why he's thanking people secretly for their support of democracy in Central America. Poindexter writes back, Don Regan knows very little of your operation. The emails hinted that this was a conspiracy of a few people, Reagan, the chief of staff. And that's the way the traditional narrative is, is goes. I mean, Don Reagan, eventually, uh, the chief of staff is fired. Howard Baker, respected senator from Tennessee, brought in. But not everyone was satisfied with that or with the Terror Commission. Congress, including some Republicans, enact their own committee and they appoint a special prosecutor, Lawrence Walsh. Congress's probe begins in June 1987, culminating in its interviews and invite of Colonel Oliver North. Here is where Iran-Contra becomes very different than Watergate. Instead of congressional hearings being the vehicle for introducing the scandal to the public, The news media already introduced the scandal the Tower Commission had released. Tower Commission report had been released. The congressional hearings then became, on top of this, a public show with some embarrassing moments for the president, certainly, with the testimony of someone who everyone knew committed a crime, Oliver North, but also made the congressional Democrats look like witch hunters. The problem was there were two investigations going on at once, Lawrence Walsh's, and that of the Congress. This is a problem, because if you have people testifying, they have a little difficulty testifying in the two places, where in the one place, it's all for just information-seeking, and in the other, they're facing criminal charges. So, So, Congress had a dilemma with Oliver North. They wanted the truth to get out to the American people. I suspect that they knew there would be some damaging politics for the administration. But if you give Oliver North immunity, then he's off the hook for the criminal deeds. But if you refuse immunity, then all you're going to have in your congressional hearing is hours of television where Oliver North is simply saying, I take the fifth, I take the fifth. North is the one that Congress wanted to get on the TV. He was the committer of the crime they felt he was the guilty man. Maybe there were some notes, some hints of that Oliver North would become kind of the John Dean of Iran-Contra, the way he was in Watergate, that they would get some the story from him and determine if there was any link to the president or anyone else in the administration that could be damaged by the scandal. They were so eager, perhaps, that they made mistakes. Congressional Democrats did not question North in private. They allowed ground rules where North could interrupt any of the congressmen or senators of the Joint Commission, but not be interrupted himself. They gave North use immunity, not total immunity, immunity only for what he said in front of Congress. So that meant that congressmen and senators could not ask North questions that might be used in the criminal trial, and that really limited what they could say. And he would engage in kind of hyperbole, storytelling, quick snaps, attacks on his accusers, moments of patriotism, and he couldn't be interrupted. Some of the things he said, you know. There is a great deception practice in covert operations. I would have offered the Iranians a free trip to Disneyland if we had gotten Americans home for it. I'm not in the habit of questioning superiors. I saluted smartly and charged up the hill. North talked about spending his own money on the Contras. When asked why he shredded documents, why did the government give me a shredder if I wasn't to use it? I think it's interesting in terms of today's politics to go back to that 1987 hearing and all North's appearance because... When you hear that this kind of post-truth is something new, or in politics someone just kind of being bald-faced about what they're saying and running with it, despite how shocking and scandalous it is, this is 1987. Indeed, there was an effect from it. USA Today's headline after the testimony was, Ole Mania sweeps the USA. 15,824 callers on a special hotline that the USA Today paper had set up called to say he was an honest man and should get a medal. This is before web polls and Twitter and Twitter following and retweeting. Only 1,500 said he was lying. Flowers and telegrams arrived to the Congress for Oliver North from all over the country. 60 million viewers would watch the remainder of those hearings. The presence of a defendant who didn't cover up brazenly talked about his involvement made Iran-Contra a little bit different. The fact that Reagan could convincingly admit that he had no knowledge, no Nixon-like tapes existed, at least that were known uh, at the time. Time has shown that there were diaries. They weren't immediately made available. And probably most importantly, there was a different view of Reagan than, say, Nixon and the lack of self-gain from the perpetrators of the scandal. What did they get out of it, except for helping these Contras? The reporter of Watergate fame, Bob Woodward, examining Iran-Contra, comparing it to Watergate, felt that the president's action, while a little late, such as appointing the Tower Commission, firing Reagan, and Oliver North's bucking at the congressional hearing, helped to wave off some of the attacks that might have happened. But despite the success of North in those hearings... In a little bit of counterattack there. There was damage done to Reagan politically by Iran-Contra, more than by anything else in his administration. Reagan was chopped to a 42% approval in 1987, down from 69% earlier that year. After Iran-Contra, his Supreme Court nomination of Robert Bork was defeated. He lost two veto battles as well. He was no longer the president of 1981. Not only was he losing some Democrats that he could either persuade or subtly threaten politically into going along with them, he was losing Republican senators and congressmen. The Reagan of... 1986 and 1987 is in contrast, perhaps, with the image that started to develop after his presidency that this was a no fail presidency, that Reagan was always popular, and that there was little opposition, and that all of his actions were considered great the great communicator, the speeches were always good, speeches always well received, handled the press masterfully, had great people in the White House. That was true at times, but not always. In fact, Iran-Contra was such a powerful scandal that had other events not intervened, the consequences may have been more dire. As it was, Reagan's polls would be back up somewhat by the next year. The economy, gas prices, employment, inflation, not something we think about a lot now, but the scourge of the 70s, was on the minds of voters in the 1980s, and inflation had vastly improved. It was down to just 5%. Most notably, his summits and meetings with Gorbachev became more productive. Peace was around the corner, it seemed, and his approval rating rose from 47% in January 1988 to 57%, right at the time when voters were choosing between Michael Dukakis and his own VP, George H.W. Bush. Democrats tried to use Iran contra as an issue, but were unable to get too much new traction. Reagan, at least it appeared, disclosed what he knew and what he didn't know. And while he caught flack for being out of touch with his operations, while it led to increased skepticism about how much he was running the White House, how much he was in charge of the presidency, he couldn't be caught lying to investigators or directly obstructing the investigation. Historian Stephen Ambrose wrote If he kept us out of war, Avoided a major depression, almost anybody would have had a high rating after what we had been through in the 70s. This scandal very much goes to the image of Reagan as president, and was he delegating too much? Was he indirectly in control? Some of his own people, of course they were the people that were fired from the administration, but some of his own people nonetheless critique this. Donald Reagan called it a guesswork presidency. As Treasury Secretary says, I was never given any kind of indication of what I was to do. And as Chief of Staff, I very often got no reaction when I made very large suggestions or wrote memos with strategic priorities to the presidents. Got nothing more than a nod. Al Haig, former Secretary of State, said, The presidency was as mysterious as a ghost ship. No description of jobs. No rules. William Bunch, author of The Reagan Myth and critic of Reagan, said, had Reagan or any leader been completely on top of the increasingly complicated Iran-Contra machinations, he would have realized its enormous destructive potential. Others criticized his choice of staff. For instance, Tip O'Neill made it very clear, never would have happened if Baker was in charge. Reagan alludes to that in his own autobiography, that it was a fateful decision not to make James Baker national security advisor after being chief of staff, something that Baker wanted. Nancy Reagan, in her autobiography, uh, My Turn, indicated that had the Troika still been in charge, really a reference to Michael Deaver and James Baker, more than Meese, who was involved in this, never would have happened. And that is the story, as you might read it in a textbook, say, and as particularly you might read it had the textbook been written in 1989 or 1990, the traditional story. And that's the scandal breaks out. Reagan launches an internal investigation. There's no impeachment. The Congress investigates the Oliver North thing. With the passage of time, there are some additional voices to consider. One is, we referenced that Congress had initiated an independent prosecutor, Lawrence Walsh. His investigation doesn't end with the Congress's investigation. It doesn't end with the 1988 election or the end of Reagan's presidency. His goes all the way to 1993. In fact, he interviews Reagan after the presidency. He interviews President Bush. He learns that President Bush several of their cabinet members were not just sitting in national security meetings listening, they were taking notes. Sometimes referred to as diaries, but in the case of Reagan, he had an actual diary, probably the last president to do it. He kept a diary throughout his entire presidency. President Bush, it turns out, has what's called a diary, but they're notes of the national security meetings. He never gives them to Walsh. And that goes all the way till throughout the 1992 election. And it's not till after he leaves office that former President Bush hands over the diaries of the national security meetings so that Walsh can do his investigation. He interviews former President Reagan. He interviews former President Bush. He considers charges as new materials are discovered and an attempt by Attorney General Edwin Meese to kind of take Reagan out of certain meetings that he was in. Reagan's physical condition blocks any thought of that. As president, one of his last acts, President Bush will pardon Caspar Weinberger and several others that were involved. This did not delight the prosecutor, Lawrence Walsh. As a prosecutor, there is nothing he could do about it. It was, Walsh said, a great disservice to the country. He considers charges against Former President Bush, even after, particularly after the pardons. But President Bush, Vice President Bush was in a secondary position. The events were now several years old, two presidencies ago. New president, President Clinton's taking office. His aides talk him out of it. But Walsh never believes that the administration had anything else but a contempt for his investigation efforts. And there's another story, a narrative on top of this. You have that kind of traditional Iran-Contra. You have the investigations that occurred afterwards when nobody was really watching it that much, except for a little bit during the 92 presidential election, the Walsh investigation. And then you have some reporting conducted by Seymour Hersh in 1990 in the New York Times. And Hersh's story is interesting because he finds fault not only with the executive actions, but also with the congressional committees investigating it. Here's what he says. The shredded documents and shredded memories of the White House cover-up are usually blamed for the failure of the committees to uncover all the facts. But there were other reasons, namely the limitations that the committees imposed on themselves or allowed to be imposed on them. They began the investigation by immediately imposing an unrealistic deadline for ending it. They agreed to permit the White House to review all the internal documents for relevance before being released to investigators. They made no attempt to locate and make evidentiary use of presidential calendars. Nor did they seek presidential telephone logs that were available. They were intimidated by the public reaction testimony of Oliver North and flummoxed by the immunized testimony of Poindexter who said he had not told the president of the diversion in order to give him deniability. Most important, senior members of Senate committee, which play the dominant role, agreed from the outset that specific evidence of a presidential act of commission would be necessary before Reagan himself would become a target. No amount of presidential negligence or nonfeasance, they decided, would justify an impeachment. Only an act of commission. As a result of these constraints, many leads, some of them startling, were never pursued or made public. That's Hirsch's article from 1990. For instance, he says, there was a key White House insider who insisted he had seen two documents, each detailing the illegal diversion of funds that were meant for the president's eyes. And he was willing to testify. He was never put on the stand. The committees learned late in the inquiry, that the White House had routinely tape-recorded President Reagan's Oval Office conversations with foreign leaders. They chose not to subpoena them. The popularity of the president, the desire to inflict a political punishment, but not a real punishment, such as impeachment, particularly one that might not there might be a backlash against them as the party's coming up for elections in 1988 that many thought. This is a difficult thing as we look at now because we know Bush is going to be president. That's not what the prediction was in 86 and 87. It looked like Republicans were going to have a really hard time keeping the White House. How popular Oliver North came. All these things appeared to encourage the Democratic investigating committees to take it easy on the president. Hirsch's sources were staff investigators for the committee, various lawyers. So there's a lot of different ways to look at this. First of all, because this is a dozen Ronald Reagans, and I'm looking at the presidency of Ronald Reagan. so important for our politics today, really the starting point for where the battle lines fall in today's politics. Reagan's sometimes seen in Our politics as a superhero, a godlike, you know, presidential figure. Uh, Going back to Iran Contra, you see a moment where the administration really botched it up as a foreign policy operation. They botched it up as a media story. They botched up the reaction to it. And it almost brought down the presidency of otherwise a president that had a lot of successes during the administration. There are some who theorize that it helped in a way because it forced Reagan to pursue peace with the Soviet Union, something that uh, we're going to discuss in the next episode. I'm not sure where I come down on that one. Certainly, it pressured Reagan to moderate a bunch of policies. I'm not sure that the Cold War issues were among them. It may have been that the politics led him to a place he wanted to go. So as a historical study of Reagan, you can pull a lot from looking at Iran-Contra. That's not often discussed. Fine. What about the politics of today? Because my history can beat up your politics. We're obviously looking at history with the politics of today. Well, the first thing to understand is you had a administration that came in in 1981 and really steamrolled Washington. This was a presidency that really was controlling things with a coalition in Congress. Well, while Reagan's party wouldn't control Congress. He did have the Senate. And in the Congress, there were enough conservative Democrats that would work with them that he almost had his own party, if you will, in the Congress as well. But in the one area of foreign policy that he wished to pursue, and that was unpopular with people and unpopular with Congress, a process was set up of back channels, of covert operations, strongly encouraged by him, if he didn't know about everything, that... um, nearly brought down his presidency. So I think it goes without saying that that's a note for a future administration that might enter the White House with great aplomb, with great um, gravity and strong feelings about your partisan issues. What trips up administrations are scandals. And scandals happen usually when there's insulation from good advice from the outside and there's insulation from media criticism because of secrecy or where officials, like in the case of the Reagan administration, Schultz, or froze out. Scandals can change presidencies and make presidential action no longer effective anymore. Turning that great office that can be of great assistance in so many ways politically to something that you need to run away from almost happened with the 40th president. James Baker, Reagan's first chief of staff, from beginning to end, Grand Contra was wrong, a textbook example of what can happen when the White House goes operational. The White House isn't always right, state and defense aren't always right, and Congress isn't always right. The policies developed through the rough and tumble of politics within the administration, between the administration and Congress, and in a continuing dialogue with the American people are more often right than wrong. So wrote James Baker no longer in a position to do anything about it. I want to thank you for listening. Again, the website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Of all the episodes of A Dozen Ronald Reagans up there, and if you like the program, please tell someone about it. We have the premium podcast. You can get more episodes. It can be as low as $2 a month. Thanks for listening.